Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. Then let's start talking. You know, um, like Michael said, I started doing dental sleep medicine uh, roughly 11 and a half years ago. Um, I fell in through the back door, never really planned on being a dental sleep medicine guy. Um, It kind of came to me and I'm glad it did. Um, over the last little while, we've taken lots of CE courses. We've given lots of CE courses, and we find it to be a great adjunct to our practice. Um, we are just a regular old drill and fill family practice. Um, we do a little bit of everything. We do mostly general dentistry. We we try to stay doing a little bit of everything. But sleep has been kind of something that's been a, started as a labor of love. Now it's a love to labor, and and um, hopefully. As we go through today, we can talk a little bit about some of the things that we're doing. Not that we're spectacular. That's the take home. We're not spectacular. We've just had the chance to do a few things um, over the past few years that are working for us. Um, and hopefully we can spark some interest to where you want to have some of these things start working for you. Um, one of those things is now it says we'll begin shortly. We might as well begin. Um, one of those things that we want to talk about today in, and will be mostly the topic of today is screening and home sleep testing. Um, one of the things about um, sleep apnea is that if we don't know who has apnea, then we don't know how to treat them. So what we want to do is demystify dental sleep medicine. We want to talk about how do we do this from start to finish, from soup to nuts? How do we do it to where we could be doing this in our own practice regardless or as some people say, irregardless of whether or not we have um, referrals by outside sources, regardless of whether we're gonna do uh, or take and bill medical insurance, which you do not absolutely 100% do not have to do that. We can start to demystify all that, but until we start to find out who these people are that we should be treating, um, you know, we're not going to be able to treat them. So, That is kind of our purpose is to help start the conversation of what do we do to find these patients within our practice. Now, when we talk about sleep apnea and and treating that, we need to know right away that there are, you know, 90 plus sleep disorders, anywhere from insomnias and hypersomnias, those that are sleep related breathing disorders of all of the sleep related breathing disorders, apnea far and away wins that game. Apnea is more than any of these all combined. Um, But of course, we also talk about those things that have to do with cardiac um, disorders. And we also have those that have to do neurological like um, sleep movement disorders. We're gonna leave all of those behind today because we don't treat any of those. Um, The last time I treated somebody with periodic limb movement was never. And the next time I treat somebody with with, uh, hypersomnias and insomnias will be never. Those are not things that are in my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is the mouth and the pharynx, oral pharynx, nasal pharynx, soft palate. And that just happens to be where all this gets started and the problems exist. And so that is my wheelhouse. So luckily for me and my practice of dental sleep medicine, of all of these things, obstructive sleep apnea, which is what we treat, is far and away the most common of all of these and the one that can potentially be the most deadly. So, um, When we look at who has apnea, um, this pie chart is kind of an interesting thing when we look at it. If we look at this, 
it does tell us that there's about 30 million people in this country that suffer from obstructive sleep apnea. That's a lot of people. Now, what's even crazier is out of those 30 million people, only 3 million have been diagnosed, meaning that there's 27 million people running around that have obstructive sleep apnea, but they don't know it. So they're going to have a lot of signs. They're going to have a lot of symptoms, and they may not put those pieces together that say, hey, I wonder if this, this, and this all might be contributory or as a result of obstructive sleep apnea. They don't know because they've never been diagnosed. Now, what's even crazier than that is that of the 3 million people, and we're talking averages here, only about 750,000 are being successfully treated for obstructive sleep apnea. And the reason for that is because the treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is traditionally and has traditionally been a CPAP machine, which is a cumbersome device that tethers you to a machine that forces air into your airway to open you up to keep you breathing at night. And while it is extremely effective and the gold standard for treatment of sleep apnea, unfortunately, you're seeing that far less than a third of those that have been diagnosed are able to use that, which means there's over 2 million people that have been diagnosed that are just not even treating them, not even using the treatment modality. So you see that there's a lot of room for, for us in this game. Now, when I first started, I thought I'm going to be the bridged gap between the 3 million people that have been diagnosed and the 750,000 that are not able to tolerate CPAP as their treatment. And I felt like that's where I'm going to win. I'm going to find those people that just said boo, poo, poo to CPAP. And, and I'm going to say, yay, yippity for oral appliance therapy. And that's where I'm going to make my sleep living. Uh, and that's where I started. And that's what we did. And it was great. And we started finding patients that didn't tolerate their CPAP machine. We had some marketing material in the office with some posters and some things like that. And people started coming out of the woodwork saying, geez, I'm on the CPAP. I hate it. And we started bridging that gap. This person tells that person. And we started getting a little word of mouth. That was nice. The longer I went, though, the more I started asking myself the question, if there's 30 million people suffering from sleep apnea and only 3 million people have been diagnosed. I'm only bridging this gap between the 3 million and the 750,000. Why don't I tap into the big pool? Why don't I jump into this deeper pool that of 30 million people that have obstructive sleep apnea and don't even know it? That becomes a little bit more difficult. You're going to have to now start to find out who these people are, what, what they look like, what they're what they suffer from. And that all boils down to screening these patients. So that is what we started to do in our office. We started to screen these three, these 30 million patients um, to help them understand some of what's going on with them as it relates to sleep. So who has sleep apnea in our practice? Well, I can tell you this much. It's not like spotting a toupee. Those easy to spot. You get a toupee on, I'll spot it. Mile away from the top of the key, I can spot you with a toupee. However, it is not as easy to find patients with obstructive sleep apnea because they don't always fit a mold. Now, there are molds of people that we would suspect and likely are going to, we're going to be right, that have sleep apnea. Maybe our big, heavy, barrel-chested guy with a big, heavy neck. Um, but I look at somebody like my mom. My mom is uh, 130 pounds. She eats like a rabbit. She's not fun to go to dinner with because she takes her own salad dressing in her purse. Um, she walks every day, but she snores like a freight train and has obstructive sleep apnea. She is not that picture of sleep apnea like you might, like you might think as you know maybe a big heavy barrel chested guy. Um, so as we start to screen our patients, what are the things if we're not going to physically just look at them and say like, 
boy, that guy or that girl, because of their heavy neck and barrel chest and wheezing and all I have, that is maybe a little easier. How are we going to find these patients when they don't look like that? Because there are literally millions of patients that suffer from sleep apnea that don't look like that. Um, now, if we start in this bottom corner down here, we will see right away, obesity is one of those things that is a complication for sleep apnea. And many times patients that take time and effort to lose some weight tend to see some of their sleep apnea symptoms disappear. They also tend to see um, their sleep apnea either lessen or maybe even go away. But for other patients, the complications of sleep apnea can be can be troublesome, can be life-changing for them, can really get those people down. They're hurting. These people are, these people have problems and they may not know that it's coming from obstructive sleep apnea. Like for example, if we continue along the bottom, hypertension, many of these patients will have blood pressure issues. Almost all of them will complain of drowsiness and fatigue. Um, in fact, oftentimes as we're screening patients, that's one of the questions we ask. Hey, are you running out of energy by about two o'clock every day? Are you looking for a Red Bull to give you some wings to get through the day? Are you waking up feeling like you didn't even sleep, like you're just waking up tired? So often that is a complication of sleep apnea. Many of these patients also are diabetic. Um, they also have heart arrhythmias. They're more prone to heart attacks. Um, while this is not diagnostic, it for me is almost diagnostic. When a patient that I'm talking to and I'm, and I'm suspecting sleep apnea in them, if I ask that patient if they wake up with morning headaches, almost universally patients with sleep apnea will say, yes, I wake up with a headache. I feel like if I don't get either some food, caffeine, ibuprofen, something in me within that first hour, this headache's just going to take me down. Um, unfortunately, we also see these things like lung hypertension and stroke. Those are things that, and, and heart attack. Those are the very things that are very deadly. The other thing that we see is memory loss. We'll talk to patients about being in a brain fog. They'll say, oh my gosh, I feel like I can't remember anything. I feel like I'm just in a daze all the time. I wake up and I oh, people say things and I don't comprehend it or I don't remember it. That memory loss and that daze feeling of just being foggy, very much a complication of sleep apnea. And then for some guys, you know, impotence, you know, that for some people is a big deal. Some people a little deal. Um, just kidding. I don't know if anybody laughs at that or they just think I'm a jerk for saying that. No, I don't routinely talk uh, to my patients about the firmness of their erections, but if they want to talk about it, I'm not opposed to it. But for some guys that can be a thing and it is a complication again of sleep apnea. When we look at this, the prevalence of patients with sleep apnea in our practices, those with drug resistant hypertension, almost all of them have sleep apnea. 83%. I mean, for me, that's all of them. Um, those that are obese, three quarters of all of those that are obese, those that have had symptoms of congestive heart failure or type two diabetes. Um, so as we're screening our patients and we're looking for patients within our own practice, I mean, all of us are sort of, excuse me, ethical, ethical and legally obligated to have a health history on all of our patients. These things I'm sure are on all of our health history forms, that drug-resistant hypertension or hypertension just in general. Um, we can look to check for obesity, whether they've had congestive heart failure, heart attacks, type two diabetes, whether they've had a pacemaker, whether they have atrial fibrillation or coronary artery disease. All of these things are likely already on our health history screening form. We can take that 
bit of information and start to clue in, you know, oftentimes we think about our diet, like for example, type two diabetic patient as dentists, and we've got our little dental hat on, we walk in and we're saying type two diabetic, we're looking for perio disease. Oh my gosh, you got periodontal pockets. We're going to have to be super concerned about perio disease. And that is true. Those things are dangerous and we do not want type two diabetics to lose their bone and, and have gum and bone related periodontal issues. However, we ought to at some point take off that dental hat and maybe put on a medical hat and say, gal, three quarters of all you people with type two diabetes also have obstructive sleep apnea to some degree. I wonder if I had a clue in on that. Um, one of the things that I have been very adamant about talking about when I talk about screening patients is that we sort of have a little bit of a moral obligation knowing that we are examining these patients deeper in the area where this all starts than probably any of their other physicians just in general. Um, plus we see some of these patients two, three, four times a year. We, we sort of are developing this moral obligation to at least screen these patients. We may not treat these patients, but we at least wanna screen these patients. Um, I look at it a lot like oral cancer. Look, I don't treat oral cancer. I don't cut out people's tongues. I don't cut out pieces of their palate, but I sure as heck make sure I'm looking around for it. You know what I mean? It saves people's lives. They're grateful for it. And I feel like sometimes whether you decide you wanna go hardcore into treating sleep apnea or not, it should be something that we screen for. And, and this is a great way to start doing it. Those patients that have these particular um, uh, comorbidity symptoms, um, things. So as we identify, we need to have a screening protocol. And here's the thing. I get it. I'm a dentist. I actually braggy braggy. I run three hygienists every day, four days a week, uh, except for, I shouldn't say that three days a week. And then two on the other side, so I run 11 hygiene days and I'm by myself in this practice. So I get that there is time that there is not time. I get it. There's going to be some patients that require more out of us. There's going to be times when we're going to get behind, but we really should start to have a protocol. Um, to screen these patients within our own practice. Um, there is a really neat course coming up put on by Awaken to Sleep in February that goes through the screening protocol, helps sort of whittle it down to where we can be quick with it, to where it does not take exorbitant amounts of time in say like a hygiene visit, that we can train our hygienists and sort of calibrate them to go through a screening protocol, just like they go through a dental periodontal protocol for checking for that type of thing. They can check for sleep apnea and ask some questions right away. But let's go through some of what that protocol looks like. Um, once we identify these patients, we're going to want to have a conversation about finding out if they have these signs and symptoms. And, and some of these signs and symptoms are intraoral signs and symptoms, you know, heavy bruxers and, and patients with, um, with acid reflux and, and patients that have um, some of these other things that we've been talking about. You start asking these questions when you see these intraoral signs and symptoms, um, scalloping of the tongue you start to ask those questions like, hey, maybe this person's sleep apnea, but we don't know. You know what I mean? You're never going to know if somebody has sleep apnea unless you get them a test. So what we have at the top is HST, which stands for home sleep test versus PSG, which stands for polysomnogram. The difference, obviously, home sleep test is what you're seeing on the left. It's a fairly uninvasive home test that has a handful of channels that check for just obstructive sleep apnea symptoms and, and signs. 
those things that would lead us to a diagnosis of just obstructive sleep apnea. Again, that's what we're treating. So that's what we care about. We're not treating periodic leg move, movement. We're not treating kind of strokes breathing. We're not treating any of these other crazy out there um, REM, you know, breathing sleep disorders. Those are not, that's not a wheelhouse. Our wheelhouse is obstructive sleep apnea. And luckily home sleep testing is designed strictly for those patients for obstructive sleep apnea. Now, if you go into the lab, a polysomnogram is a witness test. It's in a lab. It's kind of in a hospital setting. They're going to hook you up to everything. All of those wires plug into a big thing on the wall and they will check for everything. They will check to see if you have periodic limb movements. They're going to check brain function and they're going to check heart rate and they're going to check all of these different things that are happening to you during your sleep. I think when you're done, the report shows all of that kind of stuff. It'll tell you what your hobbies are, even if you don't know what they are. It is very comprehensive, but very invasive. It's really invasive and patients don't love the thought of going into a hospital setting and sleeping overnight where they don't know where they're at. They don't have their own pillow. They're hooked up to all these things. It just is not conducive for patients to just want to say, yes, let's go do this. Let's figure this out. Um, now, PSG is the gold standard. One of the big reasons why it's the gold standard is because it's observed. Um, if a lead comes off or if something happens, they can go back in and hook you back up. Um, but I always find this kind of funny that they want you to, after hooking you up to all these things, they want you to kind of relax and, and get a good night's sleep so they can evaluate everything that's going on. Now, the PSG, this polysomnogram, has lots of channels. It has this big device on the chest that has all these wires. There's leads hooked all over you. It's got nasal cannula. It's got things for EEG and EKG. It has an effort belt to check for effort and breathing. But... When you look at this guy, he does not look like he's primed for like a super duper great night's sleep. I would struggle big time because I sleep so much on my stomach that this would be a rough one for me. Um, now, the way that this looks like is if we do decide that we're going to be the one that is the dentist that doesn't, that is gonna send out for a polysomnogram versus having our own home sleep testing equipment, the process of that looks like we identify these patients, we give them a prescription, they go to a sleep lab, they hook them up like this guy at the bottom, they sleep overnight, then that test is going to tell them where they're at. Many times during that test, they'll actually halfway through the night hook them up to a CPAP machine, determine what the pressure level is on that CPAP machine to treat their apnea. They send them home with a machine and then those patients come back to you and they become a dental patient and not a sleep patient for you because they're being handled by the polysomnogram people and the CPAP people. That's the process. And I think that even if we are not treating these patients with an oral appliance, even if we're not the ones sending them home with a home sleep test, if we start to see some of these signs and symptoms, we really should, I feel, have a moral obligation to get them to either their physician to get them to a sleep test or get them right to a sleep study. Um, because these kind of things are deadly and we don't want people dying on our watch. Now, PSG pros versus cons. The pros are that it's very comprehensive. There's not a whole lot that's going to slip through the PSG cracks. Um, the other thing is it's attended by a physician. It's in a controlled environment, meaning that if any of these leads come off, if anything happens, we're going to know right away, we're going to hook it back up and we're going to continue to get good data. Now that second one attended by a technician is a pro. I find it a con, not that I'm dying to have people watch me sleep, but it is an uncomfortable environment. It's difficult to sleep with all of those things on you, just obviously. Um, and then the patient, patient compliance. You tell somebody that they're heading in and they've all seen the pictures, they've heard from their friends, their coworkers, how 
invasive it is. You, you don't get a lot of compliance, like people just saying like, all right, hook me up. Let me go some odd place and sleep for the night. Um, there's also this thing called first night effect where when you're the first night in a, in a new, it happens in hotels, it happens when you visit family, that first night effect in your new environment, you, know, you never quite get the night's sleep that you would if you're just going through your regular routine and your regular bed with your regular pillows. Now, home sleep testing is an actual real life alternative that works. It's FDA approved, it's extremely effective. And it has a lot less channels. So there's a lot less wires. There's a lot less invasiveness of the testing equipment on our bodies. But again, it only checks for obstructive sleep apnea. It will help us determine snoring and airflow. It checks for effort as we're breathing. If we're obstructed, we're gonna, we're gonna create more effort. It checks for body position, heart rate. So um, the upside to this, well, we'll go to that. Um, Oh, actually, we'll just go back to that. I can't remember if we, yeah. So when we talk about home sleep testing models, if we have the equipment ourselves, um, there that we'll call that, you know, our in, in-house home sleep testing model where we have the equipment, we screen our patients, we send it home, they bring those that equipment back to us, we load it up into a portal to be read by a sleep physician and we can handle all of that in-house. There's not a lot of, uh, other people involved other than the third party that we have interpret our tests. Our third party that interprets our test is none other than our sponsors tonight Awaken to Sleep. Let's hear for Awaken to Sleep. They interpret, come on, that was a shout out. Awaken to Sleep. that. Yeah, Awaken to Sleep is who I send all of my home sleep tests to. I upload it to a portal and there is a sleep physician that is licensed in my state, the great state of Arizona, state 48, as we call it here. And we get the interpretation back from a boarded sleep physician. We're able to talk to our patients about that and we're able to control that. There's also a third party home sleep testing model where our company, say, like Awaken to Sleep, might actually mail your patients a home sleep test where they can still have the benefit of sleeping in their house. You have no obligation to purchase any equipment, but there are, again, some hiccups associated with that, patient compliance being one of them. You're relying on a home uh, third party to home test and that patient to sort of go through how, to, how that works and what it looks like. So there are these two home sleep testing models, one where you quarterback the thing or one where you sort of turn that over to a third party to issue the home sleep test. Greg, a couple of questions since you're on this slide that we've had uh, people ask. Um, one is, which model do you use? Do you own units or ship them I, out? Yeah, I own units. Uh, I've had as many as five units. I think right now I'm running four units. Um, you do have four units. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you tell I'm real hands-on about sending people <laughs> home with units? So we send a lot of units home, but I don't know. Yeah. I think at one point we had five units in two different styles. And now I think we're to four units in one style that I like. So, yep. Um, I'll, I'll add a little bit of flavor to that to help answer the question um, as well from, from people coming in. Uh, even in Dr. Manning's circumstance, there have been patients that drive in far to his office or they are in his circumstance, snowbirds that live in two places, different times of the year um, where he'll utilize a third party service, kind of like a hybrid model. Um, so that's available as well, um, you know, depending on your circumstance. Yeah, I guess the take home really is 
the home sleep study or the home sleep testing model is the model where compliance is a little bit more um, there. Patients tend to enjoy it a little bit more. Um, they, they know that they get to be in their own bed, whether that's a model that's shipped to them or whether that's the model where I'm sending it home with them in my practice. It just tends to work good. Now, the in-house sort of like what I'm doing where I own my sleep units and I'm sending them home, um, that model works really good for me. The pros are that I have a faster workflow. I can have a patient come in through hygiene. The hygienist screens them for some clinical signs and symptoms, we go through health history and we start to say, hey, this is looking like well, the way I describe it, it kind of quacks like a sleep apnea duck and walks like a sleep apnea duck. Maybe this is a sleep apnea duck. We won't know until we, until we test you. Why don't we send you home with a home sleep test? That is very quick. Sometimes it's that same day. It helps me to increase the production. It leaves me in total control. One thing most people don't know about me that are just meeting me for the first night is I am a little bit of a control freak, a um, little bit. Um, I don't like turning things over to other people. Um, it just seems like things, balls get dropped and, and things fall between the cracks. We try to keep things a little more type A around here. I say type A, but really I feel like I'm type A plus, you know, like I really feel like I'm better than that. So I like having the control over that. Um, it allows us to, again, have this multidisciplinary approach where we're, we're kind of working with the sleep physicians and we're the ones sort of quarterbacking it, but patient acceptance is really high. The cons, really the only cons are not a con anymore because I think I own mine now. I don't think I'm paying for it anymore is the sleep equipment. And um, depending on which equipment you have, um, would determine the price, but I can tell you this much, they pay for themselves real quick. That stuff pays for themselves really, really quickly. Um, whereas the home sleep testing model, we talked about that. There's little upfront cost. You don't have to buy units. There's very little risk. Um, you still get the support from say like Awaken to Sleep or another third party home sleep testing um, company. The cons are you get a little bit lower patient's acceptance. You're not in as much control. The process takes a little bit more time. You know, you're waiting on mail, you're waiting on interpretations, you're waiting on availabilities and things like that. And, and it's a little bit higher cost to the patient. You know, our cost to send home a sleep um, test for the patient and have it interpreted and read and the disposals, the disposable pieces that they throw away, it, it's a little bit less for the patient than if I have a, a third party mail them. So patients like that a little bit too. So Greg, a couple of questions. Uh, uh -huh. You started answering uh, two of them. Um, what uh, do you charge for the home sleep test and how much? Yes, I charge 175. Now, okay. uh, full disclosure, I guess I'm okay. Full disclosure here. Um, I have the test, the testing equipment, the disposables cost me $12. So every person that goes home, takes home a little packet of $12 stuff that they're going to put on and then throw away that they, we won't reuse. So right away, it cost me $12 to issue the test. If I send that test to be interpreted by a boarded sleep physician, that costs me, I believe 79, 79, I was going to say 80. So $79. So when you put those together, we're $91 in, um, in hard costs, it costs me $91. Now at $175, it's not like I'm going to be paying my mortgage on home sleep tests. I try to keep that, um, cost affordable. I try to keep it at a number where patients are going to say yes, because truthfully, I don't want to lose money on a home sleep test and I don't, but I don't necessarily need that to be my bread and butter. I have right. class two fillings that I just love to do. <laughs> um, and you know, we, 
a lot of the times when the patients come back that we treat them with the oral sleep appliance and and that's a, a good profitable money maker for us but we can't get to that point unless we get them tested and so we try to make that pay to play as easy as we can yep and uh, i'll answer this one and then get out of your way uh carolyn asked uh what is the cost per unit to own um i can answer for uh, awaken to sleep uh the units that we retail are between 3200 and 5500 um, 55 is the higher end and that's for pediatrics, uh, but for 3,200, that's the, uh, adult units. Um, Those are the so ones we, I'm we, using. I'm a 3,200 yeah. guy. You treat adults. <laughs> it makes sense. If that question comes up right now, Michael, and I'll just, I'll just say it really quick and then, you know, maybe avoid the question in the future. I do not treat kids. There are, there are options for kids um, to be diagnosed. I don't like the liability and I also am not equipped um, for some of that. So I send kids out. I still screen them and we move them through the pediatric medicine side of things. Um, I also have a, I'm lucky to have a local orthodontist that treats kids for obstructive sleep apnea too. So if, 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 if there's that need, so I'm lucky in that regard, but I do not myself treat kids, just adults. So, all right, moving along the way that works is that, you know, before I would just send them to a sleep lab and they would get their CPAP machine and they would come back and we would just be happy that they weren't going to die. When we're doing my home sleep testing model, it looks like me getting them ready for a home sleep test. They take it home, they sleep with it at their house, they bring it back and I consult with them after it's read and interpreted and signed by a boarded sleep physician. I send that, we get that data back and I go through that with the patient. We talk about whether they're in the wheelhouse for an oral appliance and that's maybe a topic for another day, but we, we decide, hey, is an oral appliance gonna be the best bet for you or should we try maybe going the CPAP route? That's a, again, a topic for another day. But as far as that process goes, we're able to at least get those results back quick, easy, somewhat inexpensive and in a timely kind of timely way. So HHT workflow is definitely, definitely, definitely team driven. Notice I didn't even know how many units I have anymore. I don't even know how to, I, I do know how. I don't ever set people up with them. My team does that. So much of the workflow is screening. Who are these people? What does their health history say? What does their intraoral signs and symptoms look like? So much of this is my team being calibrated to see those kind of things and have them take on their hygienist hat and look at probe depths and calculus and inflammation, and then take that off and put on a medical hat that says, wonder if that coupled with some health history things, and that might be worthy of me asking a couple of probing questions about whether or not they're tired all the time or whether they wake up with morning headaches or whether they're in a brain fog or whether they just feel like they can't even get through their day or they don't have any energy when they get home to be with their spouse or kids. Those are difficult questions, but when you put a lot of those together, these patients actually really appreciate you looking for those. So it is a team driven workflow. You know, when we talk about these in our weekend courses, we talk about a sleep champion, somebody that's gonna be in your practice that is sort of their, their contact and their point person that's going to be able to help them go through questionnaires and screeners, be able to take intake forms and, and educate all the way to getting a home sleep test out to them, back in, uploaded to Awaken to Sleep's portal, get the sort of the interpretation and the signed documentation back from that boarded sleep physician, and then get all the way to where we, we start pointing them in the right direction for treatment. So um, this is, slide has now become kind of a joke. Um, 
I love this slide, I apparently, because it's in all of my presentations, but we are starting on quite a pretty good little journey. Um, and really, if we're gonna get to become sleep dentists, what a title I have, sleep dentist. It resonates. I feel like it makes me sound cool. But if we want to, if we all want to get to that point where we are sleep dentists, we have to start somewhere. Um, you know, these things don't just fall into our lap overnight. They do take some calibration of the team. There are good courses around. Oh my gosh, there's a course coming up. Um, this course normally I teach. Uh, I am I am going to be not available on the 18th and 19th of February. And so Dr. Patel is going to be teaching with Michael and Chad, and this is a great course. Um, I get to say it's a great course because usually I'm a key component in putting on the course. Um, <clears throat> this is, in my opinion, my humble opinion. Now, of course, I teach the course occasionally, probably the best deal going. I've taught for other people, places. I've taught for other groups. Nobody is offering what they're offering right now at 395. This is literally everything you need in a weekend course. The hard part about it is, is that it may be a lot. It may be like they're, they're giving away every single one of the trade secrets that might feel like you're standing in a fire hydrant with a Dixie cup, but it is as comprehensive of a course as you'll ever find. Um, if you're a go-getter and all you need is the info, join the class. If you find that you are not a go-getter, but you still want to do this, join the class and then talk to them about some help after the class to keep that momentum going. But this is a, I guess, since I'm not teaching it, it's not shameless. This is just a great course that's coming up here in the next yeah. month or so where you can take a lot of the information that we've been talking about coupled with a ton more information and start to think about how that would work in your practice. Uh, so I will hop in and only add that there are a ton of forms, a ton of CEs. We'll talk more about the details later uh, at the end of the course tonight. Let's, uh, we can get back to the clinical content for tonight, but thank you, man. Hey, am I going through this? Or you want to go? Oh, okay. He went, I guess I'm going through this. No, this is good. This is good. I can do this. I can do this. All right. All right. Okay. Here we go. Um, when we send home a home sleep testing report, and we get that back and we want to use that to be legal in the way we handle things. One of the things that when I say that, I want to just quickly say is that when I say that we wanna be legal, just know that anything we do in the world of sleep apnea, there is not no zero, there is not a dental code for any of this stuff. So if we are going to do this, we have to take off that dental hat and put on our medical hat. Oh, you're gonna tell me I'm wrong. You go ahead and tell me because yes, there is a caveat. Oh yeah, no, the the, no, go the ahead. ADA the ADA came out with a code, so oh, that did. dental insurance can deny you and you can submit gotcha. to medical. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's so, it. That's all. I, I guess got. I guess that's the caveat is that there is not a dental code that you will ever use. Yeah, correct. To do, to do one of these. So when we talk about the ethical legal side of things, and we're going to be using this medical model because we're going to be talking about medical things. You know, dentists, we've wanted a seat at that medical table forever. And as soon as we get a chance, let's not screw this up. All right. Let's do it right. Let's do it ethical. Let's do it legal. And let's find out what we need. When we get a report back, it needs to have a few things on that report. One of them, it needs to be dated. If we're going to bill medical insurance or we're going to fabricate an appliance, we want this to be within one or two years. 
we don't want to be, obviously we wouldn't want to just have some diagnosis for a crown or a filling that we diagnosed two or three years ago without some kind of new information to make sure that everything was still the same as it was a year or two ago. I think you get that idea. I wouldn't put in a DO on 29 and then three years later, just schedule that person for a DO on 29 if I hadn't seen them in two or three, four years, right? So we wanna make sure that that information is up to date. Secondly, is we need a physician recommendation for treatment. We want that physician, not us. We're not a physician. We cannot diagnose. We are not, it's not in our wheelhouse. It's not, it's not with our license to be able to diagnose. So we want the physician to diagnose. And in this particular case, they gave a diagnosis of mild obstructive sleep apnea and a recommendation for treatment, which is consultation and evaluation for oral appliance therapy. The last thing that it absolutely has to have. One of the nice things about these studies when they come or these reports when they come back from awakening to sleep is that there's also some alternate treatment op options and some general recommendations for the patient, but it has everything else on there. It has the raw data. It also has the recommendations, but really important is that it has a boarded sleep physician's signature on the bottom of this. That makes it legal. That makes you ethical to do the treatment. Again, you're not diagnosing. They're the ones recommending that you that this patient use an oral appliance. It just so happens that I do oral appliances in my office. So when it comes back as a recommendation to do an oral appliance, I know a guy. So um, when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, we would go by a criteria called AHI. You see that in the top left corner of the slide. AHI stands for apnea hypopnea index. Anybody that's dabbled in sleep before kind of knows what this is. We're not gonna belabor the point, but in essence, this is an index number of the total amount of times where either somebody stops breathing or shallow breathes to the point where they have a desaturation in oxygen. However many times this happens per hour is going to be our apnea hypopnea index. And depending on that number will also be our diagnostic criteria. So an AHI of zero to five is non-apneic. Five to 15 is mild, 15 to 30 is moderate, and then anything over 30 is considered severe. Now, when we talk about what is the wheelhouse for an oral appliance for us, well, we've treated anything from very mild to extremely severe, but when we get these back and a patient has never been treated with any other treatment modality before, ethical, legally, those that are mild and moderate are absolutely in the wheelhouse to where we can become primary therapy. They do not need to seek a CPAP first. They don't need to try a CPAP to see if they tolerate it or not. If they want to, more power to them. But if, if they are mild or moderate, we can jump straight to an oral appliance. We can expect based on data, statistics, that we will be successful with them for the most part. That we can say we are FDA cleared for mild and moderate cases to be primary therapy. Now, if they're over 30 and they're severe, ideally in a perfect world and very often times and almost every time, I will recommend that they go to a CPAP first. If they don't tolerate the CPAP, which oftentimes they do not, they come back and we treat them with an oral appliance, but I feel better about it if they are severe, if they will try a CPAP first, it will be better for them. The chances of success with a severe patient and CPAP is higher than an oral appliance, statistically speaking. That being said, we've had a lot of success with severe patients, but not all of them. And so that is kind of our take home for that. When we get these tests back 
and we get these interpretations back, we'll go back a slide. If that recommend or if that diagnosis is mild or moderate obstructive sleep apnea, the recommendation will be oral appliance. If it is severe, it will be CPAP. Okay, when we look at this and we see that this patient is 21 on the AHI, you see these colors? fantastic colors, you know, green. Wow. That's great. Green is great. Yellow is starting to get yellow. Orange is getting out of yellow and into red. And of course we know red is bad. So when we show this to a patient, we say, this is your number. Look where it lands. They can start to see that they're approaching severe. They start to see, man, I'm not over in this green for go. Everything's great. It starts to be able to tell us like, Hey, look, you're kind of in this spot where you're not real great. Now you're not crazy off the charts, severe, you find yourself right in that moderate wheelhouse to where some of these things where you're feeling like fogginess and fatigue and morning headaches and, and heaven forbid impotence or something like that. Coupled with the fact that I noticed you're taking a, a you know, medicine for diabetes, you're taking medicine for um, blood pressure. All of these things are contributory. And we start to have this conversation as to why that person is a 21, but how great that it's in color. They look at that color. You don't have, need to belabor the point. You don't need to tell them all these numbers. And, oh, you're 21 means about zero to five. And AHI means how many times you just say, look, your diagnostic number is 21. You notice that's getting into this orange. That's not great. That means 21 times an hour per hour. You're either stopping breathing or you're breathing so shallow that you're running out of oxygen. Now, these other reports kind of show that you can see how many times during a night, each one of these hashes is how many times during the night these things are happening. You know, you can go up to that top one in the red, that is the obstructive apneas. And you can say, every time you see a hash right there, you completely stop breathing for 10 seconds or more. Every time you see one of these purple lines in the middle, that means you're shallow breathing so much that you're losing oxygen saturation in your body. See how many times that's happening? Then we can come in and we can say, look, during the night, you're getting, you're getting spikes in your heart rate that are approaching 100. And if you notice, there's times in the night where your oxygen, oxygen saturation is dropping below 90. You can tell them this. If your oxygen drops below 90 and you're in a hospital, they would put supplemental oxygen on you. You're not supposed to go below 90. And you can tell them you go below 90 almost every night. And the only reason why you're not getting supplemental oxygen is because you don't have a nurse in your house to come put it on you in the middle of the night. So these are the kind of things we can show these patients and they can kind of start cluing in like, hey, this is me. I'm not getting the oxygen needed to restore myself and my neurotransmitters and my brain function and all of these things I need to function the next day. That's why I feel so crappy. That's why I'm having blood pressure issues. That's why I'm having feelings of, of, being out of it. That's why I'm depressed. That's why I wake up with headaches. It's because of all of these things that you're showing them right now. And you can take what they're seeing in raw data and make it not so boring and, and number driven and, and spikies driven and say this, this little bit right here, that's why you're having morning headaches. This little bit is why you feel horrible and tired and dead to the world at like 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This all of this is contributory to why when you get home, you don't have any energy to spend time with your spouse or your kids. Um, patients appreciate that kind of stuff. They really do. I know that sounds salesy, sounds hokey. You'd be surprised how many patients really appreciate that. Nobody wants to know that they've got need a DO on number 29. Nobody cares. You got to show them that little dark spot. They don't care. It doesn't hurt. This kind of stuff, it affects their life every day. 
They want something different. They want it changed and you're the guy that can do it or a gal that can do it. So um, the poorly managed uh, dental patient, we know what that looks like. We're dentists, we do that all day. We know it, we know how to fix it. But the poorly managed apnea patient, the sort of the end play for them is death. It really is. The statistics read like this, smokers, heavy smokers, it can take up to five years off the end of your life. Sleep apneic patients, it takes seven years off the end of your life. So you can kind of see that those patients um, need our help. They really do. Um, Michael, I believe that brings us to the end of the formal presentation. Yeah. I feel like I did a really good job. Um, <laughs> I really feel like I did a great job going through all of this material, yeah. but... I am assuming that for as great of a job as I did, I have probably left the door open for things that maybe I didn't touch as well as I should have. And there's probably some questions. Uh, Bonnie said you did. Oh, Bonnie. And I'm assuming that's left the door open for lots of- uh, Yeah, I was gonna say, I'm sure it wasn't just that kidding. I did a great job. I'm sure it's <laughs> that I've left the door open for lots of questions that I've just glazed over. <clears throat> So if we have some questions, why don't we just, Michael and I can field those. Michael, you can kind of MC this part of it and let's just yep. go for it. Um, yeah, I've got, uh, before anyone pops in here, I've got nine questions already. So guys, throw them at us. Uh, I'll, I'll matriculate them here on my end. Um, so I'll start with the top. Uh, which form, in your opinion, is the magic sauce for screening? What's the best form? Well, there isn't necessarily a magic form, magic secret sauce. We use two different ones, really. We use Epworth Sleepiness Scale because it's universally recognized. Um, we do a little bit of medical insurance billing that we're trying to get out of desperately. Um, and they like that one. Uh, the, the one that I find is the secret sauce and the one that we use the very most is one that we got um, by participating with Awaken to Sleep. It's on their forms um, the forms section of their, their uh, website, Sleep Hero Network. And it's available to anybody that signs up and participates with Awaken to Sleep, but it is a great form. It takes a little bit of the subjective data out of it. I mean, it's always gonna have a little bit of subjective data, but it brings in some objective things, things that you can't really, you can't really circumvent. It's just, there's a little more black and white to it. It's an easy one for my hygienists to give a patient while they're waiting on their dental exam. If they suspect takes just a few minutes to fill out, but it gives a composite number at the end, you know, and they, Oh, that's a scary number because look at that number. It gives us something to talk about. So that's the form. You guys wouldn't know what it is because it's not a universal form. It's one that was, uh, that was formulated by Awaken to Sleep. And I find it to be really, really um, useful. Thank you, man. Uh, I, I'll add to that, um, guys, I think where, when you use a form, know what you're using it for. Uh, what Dr. Manning said very gently uh, was Epworth sleepiness scale is required by most insurance companies because it's the gold standard for daytime fatigue or sleepiness. So they have to have a score of 11 or higher as a comorbidity for daytime tiredness, all of that kind of nonsense. Know what you're using it for. The screener that he's talking about, putting it in his hygienist's hands, is an intraoral focus screener, which is perfectly helpful for your hygienist. So knowing where your form goes and what it's doing is helpful. Um, one thing that we didn't talk about tonight uh, that bears mentioning in the screening process is as you have questions on your health history, um, add in to, do they wake up refreshed? Have they been diagnosed? Do they have a CPAP? Do they use it? Add in, have they been affected by the Phillips recall? 
Um, that's a that's a real thing. There's lots of folks that do have CPAP in that, you know, 10% of people that have been diagnosed. Um, that's a lot of people still. And if they've been affected and you might be the first person to talk to them, it's very helpful information to give them. Not fear-based, not sales-based, just helpful, but it will start some conversations for you. Um, okay, um, I'm going to pull several into this, okay? One person asked what HST is best. And then we've also got, uh, which you're probably going to answer what ones you use. But uh, before I get to that, so which one is best in your opinion and why? Um, but then separate, have you had any contact and what's your opinion about the Medibyte, um, Medibyte Junior HST, the disposable watch pad uh, HST, that's the one that goes in the wrist that you send in the mail uh, or hand out one-time use. And that was it. Okay. okay. I'll Go. be the, I'll be the quick and easy one because you're going to get to, you're going to get to hit all the other ones. Um, <clears throat> I've used two home sleep tests. So I'm, I, I don't have just this library of home sleep tests that I've sent out right now. I use the ResMed apnea link. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's been money for years now. The, the, um, the reports are easy to read that actually that report that you just saw was not a ResMed um, apnea link when that one was a good one. That was the Alice Knight one. That was the Alice Knight. Yeah. Um, yep. I've also used the Aries Unicorder from Watermark. Um, I liked that one a lot, but not as much as the ResMed. It was a little more invasive. Um, patients did not love that as much. And um, and the disposables were really expensive. You know, my disposables on the ResMed are only $12. The disposables on that, I think were like $57 or something like that. So, um, so now I am down to where I, I sold everything, but my ResMeds. So that's what I'm using. So when it comes yep. to Medibike, Medibike Junior, the Nas 3, whatever T, Nox T3, yeah. I've never used them. So I, I'm going to have to have Michael go through it and he, they mail out the other ones. And so they can tell you what the results have been. Yeah. Um, so I'll be clear. We, uh, as a company, we retail the, um, we have some of the ResMed apnea link airs, uh, still, we also have the Alice Knight ones. That was the report that, um, you talked through tonight. Those are very comparable as far as disposable costs, which is a key factor in selecting your units. Um, as well as the reports that are generated, the color coding, the reports that you speak from, um, the, uh, the watch pad unit, the watch pad one, um, those disposable costs are $100 or higher sometimes um, per case. That's not including the physician interp. So for those of you guys that are, are listening, Dr. Manning had just shared earlier that his personal HST cost is $175. That's what he charges patients. And he and I know that he will often discount that as a special or part of a radio ad or things like that to help get more patients in. He can do that because it's disposable cost and the interp is less than $100. You don't ever want to be in a situation where you're actually costing yourself money if possible in your program. So knowing what your disposable cost plus your interp is, that's going to dictate a lot of how you price your test and how you price your test will often dictate how many patients say yes to it. So the lower the disposable cost, the better if possible. Um, but those, those units, the watchpad ones are very solid units. They're proven to work. They're just expensive to use. And it's a single patient use one patient, one night. If they plug it on their uh, ring finger wrong, that pat probe, and it doesn't actually work. 
that's another test. So it doesn't, it's not like you can reuse it. Um, okay, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, we have, I'm gonna bunch these questions together. Um, which states can you test in? <laughs> I've got one from Texas asking about their state board, which was- Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Texas. Bless Texas. Uh, yeah. Lee, uh, you guys take the cake for the level of drama around this decision uh, between the TDA and the TMA, because uh, all of it was just TMI. But anyway. Thank you. Um, Don't forget to tip your weight staff. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, here, here's the answer, guys. There are a handful of states that have um, opined, meaning the dental board has stated they have an opinion when they've discussed an item and they say that you can or can't do testing or it's their opinion that this shouldn't be the case, that type of a thing. There are only three dental boards that have actually gone the distance of restricting your dental license. New Jersey, you cannot own or operate a home sleep test. New York, you cannot own, operate, or order a home sleep test. In Georgia, you can own a home sleep test and perform home sleep tests on patients so long as the diagnostic test was ordered or prescribed by an MD in your state. Um, in Texas, there are specific guidelines as far as being in dental sleep medicine and treating patients. As far as home sleep testing, you guys are a green light to do tests there. Um, so that's also, um, that's also a big deal. So opinions matter to a point, um, but the dental board, unless they've actually gone to restricting your dental license, um, their opinion, if it goes against testing, is actually in direct conflict with the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. They published their official position last, uh, not even last year, it was in 2020, and they've clearly stated that it's within the scope and of practice of a dentist to hand out home sleep tests and work with their physician counterparts for the interpretation. Dentists can screen and hand out HSTs in the dental board or the AADSM's statement Physicians are the only ones that diagnose. That's the clear line. So I'm not an attorney or a uh, dental board uh, member. So why don't you guys check your own dental boards? But from us to you on this webinar, those are the lines in the sand. And um, those are the states that have clear laws that restrict the license. Um, also, the AADSM has uh, valuable information on that topic on their website with a cool map and all that kind of stuff. If you guys want more information, we can send that to you. All right, next one. Um, why do I need to interpret tests for patients that don't have OSA? You give your quick dentist answer and then I'm gonna give the put a quarter in the machine sleep tech answer to that sucker. Tell me the question again. Why do I what? <laughs> why do I need to have my home sleep test interpreted for patients that don't have OSA? That don't have OSA? So you do a diagnostic sleep test on a patient in your practice. I get the raw data back and realize that, it, that I don't have it. Yep. And then I just get to be the one to tell the patient they don't have it. Yeah. Because, you, because I'm not really equipped to, I mean, I, look, yeah. you want me to you're going to get, you're going to get a real answer. The answer right now is do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I told you, you get the short dentist answer. Here's the medical legal answer, folks. If you're actually looking at raw data on a home sleep test and you're not having an MD read and interpret that data, 
and you talk to patients, that is practicing medicine without a license. That's not my opinion. There's actually court cases of people that were flagrantly past the line, not accidentally once. It's just not acceptable. Your physicians shouldn't be doing your job. You guys shouldn't be doing their job. And to what Dr. Manning said, cover your own butt. That's a really simple thing. Charge the patient enough to pay for the interp and call it a day. Don't the best, short. The best part about dental sleep medicine is you become the hired gun for a physician that diagnoses. You don't diagnose, you don't interpret. They diagnose, they interpret. And just like anybody else, if I'm diagnosed with high blood pressure, they're going to give me a prescription for blood pressure medicine. If they've been diagnosed with sleep apnea, they're going to give them the prescription for either a CPAP or an oral appliance. And at that point, you are just the guy that's going to help facilitate it. You don't have I mean, it takes so much off of your plate, but if you don't do it the proper way, you actually add stuff on your plate, ethical, legally, that didn't need to be there ever, ever in the first place. Yep. And I'll, you know, I'll take it one step further from a sales standpoint. I mean, nobody likes saying that word, but when you're in a treatment planning consult and this patient desperately needs treatment and you're trying to get them to move forward, it's really fantastic to have a specialist who's an MD who read their data on a test and you get to blame that doctor for recommending uh, an oral appliance. You can talk about all of their different options and they can go wear the elephant trunk. If they can keep it on their face, that's fine. But somebody else recommended what you do. And that is also incredibly helpful. So don't knock that till you try it. Um, okay. Uh, completely separate tangent here. Uh, Dr. Greg Manning, do you use a pharyngometer? And if not, what are your thoughts on the pharyngometer and why do some sleep groups or gurus swear by it? I'm going to answer the latter first. Okay. Why do some gurus and sleep dentists swear by it? Because the answer is, I don't know. Um, I don't know why some, you know, that... I don't use a pharyngometer. I don't use a rhinometer. I have had a ton of success. I've never been put in jail. I've never been offered an orange jumpsuit. Um, I have had follow-up tests. I've had patients go back to physicians that are treated and I don't use a pharyngometer or a rhinometer. They're expensive and I don't find them to be anything that adds a whole lot. Now, there are some things that they can tell about maybe some vertical dimension in the way they do that. However, it gives you all of this data. And let me just, I'm in a high horse. Can I jump on? I'm in the soapbox. I'm in a, I'm in a soapbox for one quick second. Sure. Anybody who is trying to sell you something that, that helps you to diagnose somebody with sleep apnea and they are doing any of the diagnostics while you are still awake, does you no good. I do not snore when I'm, when I'm awake. I am a freight train when I'm asleep. I actually don't walk around 18 times an hour holding my breath for 10 seconds until my oxygen desaturates. But when I sleep without an oral appliance in my mouth, on average 18 times per hour, I do that. So it wouldn't matter while I'm awake if a rhinometer or a pharyngometer showed me where I have potential for obstruction and potential areas where that is going to collapse. If it does, great, treat them. If it doesn't, you can't even, you can't really technically say that it's not going to happen when they're asleep based on position or based on muscle rigidity, flaccidity. So there's just, my point is, is that 
you can treat sleep apnea very successfully at a high, high level with a lot of ethics, a lot of good legal and, and with a lot, with a lot of success without that kind of stuff. So I'm always leery of somebody that's trying to sell me equipment that I can't, that somebody has to ask that question. Nobody's asking this question. Like, tell me again, why you would have home sleep testing equipment. Well, I just spent an hour saying it's totally worth having home testing equipment because of this, 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 and this. I can't do the same for a lot of other expensive equipment that sleep groups and gurus want me to buy. Yeah. Um, so I very uh, unknowingly, I'm going to give a more PC answer than you, which is not Sorry. normal. Yeah. Um, my personal dentist has a pharyngometer. He bought it, I think 13 years ago. Um, he swears by it. And so I have kind of a unique personal perspective on that because um, I'm, I'm in, Greg, I'm in your camp with anything that is required to be purchased from someone's opinion to help patients all of a sudden becomes also an obstacle. And I'm not a fan of any obstacles in the way of treating patients well and helping them get care. Can the pharyngometer give you vertical readings that you can't get without the sonar machine that it generates? Yes. Is it a sales tool in the right hands of the right dentist? Absolutely. There are some dentists that swear by it and some that can't stand it. I think the truth is that's actually a true fact for any piece of technology. If any of you have cone beam, some of you use it every single day, like clockwork, like Dr. Manning does. You probably couldn't practice without a cone beam now because he so frequently uses that piece of tech. And then there's others of you that have it in your office and you wonder why you bought it. Tech will never be your solution to behavior modification and doing good work for patients. But if you're in that line and it meets your needs, then you got to evaluate it one-on-one -on -one for you. So I can have a, a small glimpse as to why people are so hot and heavy for that tech and yeah. why they swear by it. That being said, please don't think that a piece of equipment is going to fix your ailments in your program because it won't. Well, and I'm glad you brought up CBCT as well, because we have an airway module on our CBCT. I, I take cone beams on all of my sleep patients. We can see potential obstructions. We have software that can show them. It is a great um, screening tool. It's a great, I guess, if we want to say sales tool, helps people to say mm -hmm. yes when they can see things a little bit more. Rhinometers and pharyngometers are going to be able to do that. But again, I would never, ever try to tell somebody that, they, that I feel like their apnea would be mild, moderate, severe, or whether they have it at all based on a cone beam scan with right. a constriction. You just can't yeah. do it. That has to be done when they're asleep. Yep. Cool. Um, what's the <laughs> Susan, you have amazing questions tonight. I'm impressed with your engagement. Uh, she said, what's the best CBCT equipment for airway evaluation? Um, I can I, only I'm, tell you what I have. Yeah. I have, I have, I have SL by Dentsply Serona and I have CCAT, the CCAT suite of software. They have one called CCAT Air. It has some features on there that are kind of nice for me in a screening way. It also has some features that allow me to order oral appliances directly from the software. I know there's other ones out there and I'm sure from a screening standpoint and a education standpoint, they're probably great too. Yeah. So I'm going to say any uh, cone beam, there are lots out there that are high quality. There are lots that have the software that color codes the segmented airway. That's a big deal for screening. But when you take a picture of their airway for screening to Dr. Manning's point, 
It's just a picture while they're awake with muscle tone standing upright in your practice. So consider that. But if you're doing a lot of sleep cases and you're looking at purchasing a cone beam, any field of view, because that's the next question that people will ask, any field of view that captures the condyles is helpful because if you're putting them in a protrusive position and they have to regain their bite, you're not going to hurt their TM joint by pushing them forward, but they can possibly cause some you know, inflammation in the TM joint if they already have some disease in that. So that's what you're going to want to be aware of. So any field of view that covers the condyles and any software that's going to help you color code the segmented airway. Um, okay, uh, next, uh, next one. Um, this is a little bit off topic, but what is the lab cost to fabricate a sleep appliance? And what do you charge your patients with and without medical insurance? Um, can we just go with uh, cash fee? for yeah. your appliance. Yeah, um, because if you're going to do medical insurance, that's, we have people from all over the country. We even have some from right. Canada. That's going to be all over the board. And, and I don't want to play that game with you guys tonight. Um, our, our cash, our cash fee, um, I, I believe is $29.50 for an appliance. Um, we have an upgraded appliance that we use that's a little bit more expensive for us. That is $31.50. So we have two different appliance fees. One is $29.50 and one is $31.50. Um, the appliances can cost us anywhere from 300 up to 600. Yep. Cool. Thank you, man. Um, once you have the appliance delivered, how often do you use an HST to ensure the appliance is effective? As often as I need to, <laughs> I guess I should say, I usually test somebody after I feel like some of the subjective data is falling into line. I usually give them 60 to 90 days. I'll do an efficacy test. I don't necessarily always have that efficacy test read by a sleep physician until I get that in an area where raw data would be more congruent with subjective data, sort of the objective stuff and the subjective stuff come together. Once I have a test where those things meet, I send it off for interpretation and, and, and have the sleep physician read it and interpret it, sign it and send it back just to kind of tie the bow on it. Mm -hmm. But there's been times where I've sent two, three, maybe even four times over the course of a month or a month and a half as I make adjustments to try to try to see if I can get that number better. Um, it costs me $12 every time I do it. I do not pass that on to the patient. I sometimes don't even pass the cost of the efficacy test along to the patient. I sort of bundle that up in the cost of my Appliance. So at $29.50, that will include as many efficacy tests, including the final signed one as they need, as yeah. many titration appointments, as many phone calls, fixes, warranty checks, all that kind of stuff. I don't nickel and dime after that. Once you pay me $31.50 or $29.50, you got me for a year. Yep. So um, let me add some clarity on that, folks. <clears throat> Probably some of you are wondering how on earth Dr. Manning includes all of that stuff bundled into a fee like 29.50, uh, the answer is he's got a calibrated workflow in his team. So he's not spending two or three hours with every sleep case. He's got a team that's actually supporting that process, doing a lot of titration appointments. So he rounds on those like ortho. So it becomes very cost-effective when your team is calibrated, hence the reason, and if there's a plug here, hence the reason to train your team. If you're being a solo evangelist in your practice for sleep, you're only going to do that until you get distracted or you get exhausted. So having people with you that are going to help carry that torch is crucial. 
whether you come to our course or you get them equipped somewhere else, please do that because it's going to help you do more work and do it better. Um, okay, one other question we got, actually, and I have one for you. Um, so this is a serious one. Uh, did you say the uh, serious brand uh, CBCT? I'm going to type it out, actually, because <laughs> I'm reading it as I as it came in. Uh, it's uh, Orthofos SL and the software is CCAT Air. So I'll, I'll oh, go yeah. ahead and type that in. Yeah, Orthofoss, yeah. um, it's made by Dense Play Serona. They have a handful of different CBCTs. Orthofoss SL has one with an extended view, so you can still capture condyles and the airway in the same view. But for me as a general dentist, it also gives me an endo module where I can really hone in on a quadrant. I can do it for general diagnostics. It's just kind of a good all around. And, and while Dense Play Serona has, a, you know, they're, they're great for what I use because I'm also in their product line with Sarek and a few things like that. Um, they're user-friendly. They're easy to use. They're maybe a little bit more expensive than some, but sometimes you get what you pay for. Yeah. Okay. So last question of the night. Um, if you had to pick, would you rather ride a <laughs> slow zebra across the Sahara on a safari or ride the monster maverick waves in Fiji with the surf pros? That is the easiest question I will ever answer. <laughs> I am slow zebra all day long. I love the water, but it also freaks me out just enough to where if I'm getting pummeled by waves, you might as well just kill me because that's sort of my, that's my hell. Got it. See, I'm the Maverick waves from Fiji all day long. Cause you, Heck yeah, you are. If, if you're going to go out, you might as well go out with a story, right? Yeah. And if you don't, then you have a story to tell for the rest of your life. Slow you zebra just gets you eating fast, man. <laughs> you don't think there's going to be stories with me riding across the Zahara on a zebra? Yes. You're wrong. Yep. Oh, Chad. Okay. So apparently we're just goofing off here. Chad said there's still two questions we didn't answer uh -oh. in the chat. My apologies, people. Um, okay. So first question is, what is the difference between AHI and RDI and which do you treat from? They're, okay. They're very similar. The RDI, the RDI is basically the AHI with one more small contributing factor. Usually the RDI is going to be one or two numbers higher. Mm -hmm. It will always be right around in there. I use AHI or RDI it, it, because they're so similar. Oftentimes I'll use the same. Um, and, and a lot of times the stuff like oxygen saturation and oxygenation is always going to be the same in both of those. One just has a little, one has what's called RERA, which is respiratory effort related arousals, which can be you causing a, could be causing a wake up from something other than the airway obstruction. Yep. Yeah. The noise wakes you up instead of the oxygen drop. Right. Yep. Um, and then how, <clears throat> excuse me, how often do we calibrate the home sleep test monitor and how often do you encounter broken parts? The, I don't calibrate them. I think they're pre, they stay calibrated. Um, Correct. It's infrequent, but not unheard of to have parts come back broken. Yep. Um, I've had one unit now for since 18, 17, 18. 17. 17. Yeah. And I, I think that one, I have three units that I've never had to do anything with. That one, I've had two broken parts. Yep. That are, it's a nominal fee for the replacement pieces. Um, it's not anything crazy. We have a form that says if somebody breaks it, they buy it, but we've never mm -hmm. charged anybody for it. 
because you're the nice guy, man. Look at me. If they break it. <laughs> yeah. Um, to, to be clear, that's that's also uh, one of the factors in looking at your home sleep test. If you're looking at buying one, how long will it last you? What's the average life cycle of that device? And how, if it breaks, what does that look like? How frequently would it break? Um, you know, when something breaks on a Ferrari, it's a lot more expensive than a Lexus or a Camry. It just is. So depending on what you're looking for in your home sleep test, that's one of the factors that you're going to want to ask questions about. And uh, we're happy to answer those, by the way. So if that's one of the things you're looking at several different HSTs as a purchase um, and you're trying to evaluate them, it's hard to get straight answers about other people's equipment from anyone who manufactures one device. That doesn't mean they're being dishonest. They just only know what they know and they really know their thing, which isn't wrong. It just is. Um, but our sleep coaches candidly will give you straight answers on multiple units, whether we sell them or not, we'll answer any question that we possibly can for you guys in, in the evaluation of that for your program. Um, not all units are made the same and they're not all are going to fit everybody's program. So, um, anyway, I, with that, I mean, Dr. Manning, I got nothing left. We're, we're long, like normal and, uh, sorry. Oh, Alan is raising his hand. I don't know how to, uh, <laughs> maybe he's giving you a high five long distance, man. All right. Yeah. I, Alan, if you have a question, ask it quickly or forever hold your peace, friend, because <laughs> we're, we're getting ready to wrap this thing. Uh, Greg, I was just going to ask you, uh, parting words. Um, Sam is Sorry, buying was... Alan some time. Sam just asked a question. Yeah, I was going to uh, say that. So... For CBCT, what position of the mandible do you ask patients to place their incisors on the bite fork? Um, I measure, obviously, the George gauge. I usually put them at 50% of their maximum anterior posterior protrusion to start. Cool. Mostly because I'm not good at math, and I can usually figure out 50%. <laughs> and it doesn't hurt people. Kill me, man. All right. Uh, no question from Alan. Parting words. You know, parting words are this is, again, this is something, this, this is becoming, in my opinion, the new oral cancer screening. I feel like anything that you can do to keep a patient alive and anything that you can do to enhance the life and quality of life of your patients should probably be worthy of looking into. Um, that being said, it sure would be a shame to know that you were screening all of these patients and not helping them yourself. You have the ability, you have the license, and you can have the know-how to do it. My take home is if anybody is interested in this, find a course, get some more knowledge and get this going in your practice. Uh, I have found that my team loves doing this kind of stuff because it gets them out of the mundane. They start to see patients happy, not because they got a DO on 29, but because they're sleeping in the same bed with their spouse, they're feeling better, they're, they're not snoring, they're happy, they've got energy. That is something you can do for those patients, but you might need a little bit of extra know-how. You might need to calibrate your team. You might need to grab some more than just one hour and 24 minutes on a webinar on a Tuesday night. So if this is something where as the course has gone on, you feel like, boy, I feel like this is growing inside of me as something I need to do, do it. You won't regret it. Yep. And I got nothing to add to that. 
That was a mic drop. Okay. Just not this mic. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good night, everybody. We appreciate right. you hanging out with us this long. Okay. Thanks for coming. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakenasleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken number two sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.